Chapter 2 Crocodiles I didn't even know my mother could drive. We hardly ever saw any cars in Estrov because nobody could afford to buy one. And anyway, there wasn't anywhere to go. The black larder probably belonged to one of the senior managers. Not that I was thinking about these things just then. The driver's door opened and my mother got out. Straight away I saw the fear in her eyes. She raised a hand in my direction, urging me to stay where I was. Then I ran round to the other side and helped my father out. He was wearing a loose white coat that flapped over his normal clothes and I saw with a sense of horror that it was like a pool of black water sucking me in that he had been hurt. The fabric was covered with his blood. His left arm hung limp. He was clutching his chest with his right hand. His face looked thin and pale and his eyes were empty, clouded by pain. My mother had her arm around him, helping him to walk. She at least had not been hurt, but she still looked like someone who had escaped from a war zone. There were streaks running down her face. Her hair was wild. No boy should ever see his parents in this way. It is not natural. Everything I had always believed and taken for granted was instantly smashed. The two of them reached me. My father could go no further and sank to the ground, resting his back against our garden fence. And all the time I had said nothing. There were a million questions I wanted to ask, but the words simply would not reach my lips. Time seemed to have fragmented. The first explosion, the gunfire and the smoke, going downstairs, seeing the car. They were like four separate incidents that could have taken place years apart. I needed them to explain it for me. Somehow, perhaps, they could make it all make sense. Yasha! My father was the first to speak, and it didn't sound like him at all. The pain was distorting his voice. What's happened? What is it? Who hurt you? You've been shot! Once I'd begun to speak, I could barely stop, but I was making little sense. My father reached out and grabbed hold of my arm. I'm so glad you're here. I was afraid you'd be out of the house. But you have to listen to us very carefully, Yasha. We have very little time. Yasha, my dear boy. It was my mother who had spoken, and suddenly there were tears coursing down her cheeks. It didn't matter what had happened at the factory. It was seeing me that had made her cry. I will try to explain to you, my father said. But you can't argue with me. Do you understand? You have to leave the village immediately. What? I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. You have no choice. If you stay here, they'll kill you. 
His grip tightened on me. They're already on their way. Do you understand? They'll be here very soon. Who? Why? My father was too weak, in too much pain to say anything more, so my mother took over. We've never told you about the factory, she said. We weren't allowed to. But it wasn't just that. We didn't want you to know. We were ashamed. She wiped her eyes, pulling herself together. We were making chemicals and pesticides for farmers, like we always said. But we were also making other things for the military. Weapons, my father said. Chemical weapons. Do you understand what I mean? I said nothing, so he went on. We had no choice, Yasha. Your mother and I got into trouble with the authorities a long time ago when we were in Moscow and we were sent out here. That was before you were born. It was all my fault. They stopped us from teaching. They threatened us. We had to earn a living and there was no other way. The words were like a stampede of horses galloping through my head. I wanted them to stop, to slow down. Surely all that mattered was to get help for my father. The nearest hospital was miles away, but there was a doctor in Rosna. It seemed to me that my father was getting weaker and that the blood was spreading. But still they went on. This morning there was an accident in the main laboratory, my mother explained, and something was released into the air. We had already warned them that it might happen. You heard us talking about it only last night. But they wouldn't listen. Making a profit was all that mattered to them. Well, it's over now. The whole village has been contaminated. We have been contaminated. We brought it with us in that car. Not that it would have made any different. It's in the air. It's everywhere. What is? What are you talking about? A form of anthrax. My mother spat out the words. It's sort of a bacterium, but it's been modified so that it's very contagious and acts very quickly. It could wipe out an army. And maybe we deserve this. We were responsible. We helped to make it. Do it, my father said. Do it now. With his free hand, he fumbled in his pocket and took out a metal box about 15 centimetres long. It was the sort of thing that might contain a pen. My mother took it. Her eyes were still fixed on me. As soon as we knew what had happened, our first thoughts were for you, she said. Nobody was allowed to leave the factory. That was the protocol. They had to keep us there to contain us. But your father and I had already made plans, just in case. We stole a car and we smashed through the perimeter fence. We had to reach you.
the siren? That was nothing to do with the accident. They set it off afterwards. They saw we were trying to escape. She drew a breath. The guards fired machine guns at us and they sounded the alarm. Your father was hit. We were so frightened we wouldn't be able to find you, that you wouldn't be at the house. Thank God you're here, my father said. He was still holding on to me. He was breathing with difficulty. My mother opened the box. I didn't know what would be inside or why it was so important. But when I looked down, I saw that it contained the last thing I had expected. There was some grey velvet padding and in the middle of that, a hypodermic syringe. For every weapon, there has to be a defence, my mother went on. We made a poison, but we were also working on an antidote. This is it, Yasha. There was only a tiny amount of it, but we stole it and we brought it to you. It will protect you. No, I don't want it. You have it. There isn't enough for us. This is all we have. My father's hand had tightened on my arm, pinning me down. He was using the very last of his strength. Do it, Eva, he insisted. My mother was holding the syringe up to the light, tapping it with her finger, examining the glass vial. She pressed the plunger with her thumb so that a bead of liquid appeared at the end of the needle. I began to struggle. I couldn't believe she was about to inject me. My father wouldn't let me move. As weak as he was, he kept me still while my mother closed in on me. It must be every child's nightmare to be attacked by his own parents. And at that moment, I forgot that everything they were doing was for my own good. They were saving me, not killing me. But that wasn't how it seemed to me. I can still see my mother's face, the cold determination as she brought the needle plunging down. She didn't even bother to roll up my shirt sleeve. The point went straight through the material and into my arm. It hurt. I think I actually felt the liquid, the antidote, coursing into my bloodstream. She pulled out the needle and dropped the empty hypodermic onto the ground. I looked down and saw more blood, my own, forming a circle on my sleeve. My father let go of me. My mother closed her eyes for a moment. When she opened them again, she was smiling. Yasha, my dearest, she said. We don't mind what happens to us. Can you understand that? Right now, you're all we care about. You're all that matters. The three of us stood there for a moment. We were like actors in a play who had run out of lines. We were breathless, shocked by the violence of what had taken place. It was like being in some sort of waking dream. We were surrounded by silence. Smoke was still rising slowly above the hills and the village was still completely empty.
There was nobody in sight. It was my father who began again. You have to go into the house, he said. You need to take some clothes with you and any food you can find. Look in the kitchen cupboard and put it all in your backpack. Get a torch and a compass. But most important of all, there is a metal box in the kitchen. You know where it is, beside the fire. Bring it out to me. I hesitated, so he went on, putting all his authority into his voice. If you are not out of the village in five minutes, Yasha, you will die with us, even with the antidote. The government will not allow anyone to tell what has happened here. They will hunt you down and they will kill you. If you want to live, you must do as we say. Did I want to live? Right then, I wasn't even sure. But I knew I couldn't let my parents down, not after everything they had done to reach me. Not daring to speak, my mother silently implored me. I could feel my throat burning. I reeled away and staggered into the house. My father was still sitting on the ground with his legs stretched out in front of him. Looking back, I saw my mother go over and kneel beside him. Almost tripping over myself, I ran across the garden and through the front door. I went straight up to my bedroom and, in a daze, pulled out the uniform I'd worn on camping trips with the Young Pioneers, our Russian scouting organisation. I had been given a dark green anorak and waterproof trousers. I wasn't sure whether to carry them or to wear them, but in the end I pulled them on over my ordinary clothes. I quickly put on my leather boots which were still covered in dried mud and took my backpack, a torch and a compass from under the bed. I looked around me at the pictures on the wall. A football club, various helicopters, a photograph of the world taken from out of space. The book that I had been reading was on the floor. My school clothes were folded on a chair. I could not accept that I was leaving all this behind, that I would never see any of it again. I went downstairs. Every house in the village had its own special hiding place, and ours was in the wall beside the stove. There were two loose bricks and I pulled them out to reveal a hollow opening with a tin box inside. I grabbed it and took it with me. As I straightened up, I noticed my grandmother still standing at the sink, peeling potatoes with her apron tied tightly around her waist. She beamed at me. I can't remember when there's been a better harvest, she said. She had absolutely no idea what was going on. I went over to a cupboard and shoved some tins, tea, sugar, a box of matches and two bars of chocolate into my backpack. I filled a glass with water I'd taken from the well. Finally, I kissed my grandmother quickly on the side of the head and hurried out, leaving her to her work. The sky had darkened while I was in the house. How could that have happened? It had only been a few minutes, surely. But now it looked as though it was going to rain. 
perhaps one of those violent downpours we often had during the months leading up to winter. My father was sitting where I had left him and seemed to be asleep. His hand was clutched across the wound in his chest. I wanted to carry the tin box over to him, but my mother moved round and stood in my way. I held out the glass of water. I got this for father. That's good of you, Yasha, but he doesn't need it. But... No, Yasha, try to understand. It took a few moments for the significance of what she was saying to sink in, and at once a trap door opened and I plunged through it into a world of pain. My mother took the box and lifted the lid. Inside there was a roll of banknotes, a hundred roubles, more money than I'd ever seen. My parents must have been saving it from their salaries, planning for the day when they returned to Moscow. But that wasn't going to happen, not now. She gave it all to me along with my internal passport, a document that everyone in Russia was required to own, even if he didn't travel. Finally, she took out a small black velvet bag and handed it to me too. That is everything, Yasha, she said. You have to go. Mother, I began. I felt huge tears swell up in my eyes and burning in my throat was worse than ever. You heard what your father said. Now listen very carefully. You have to go to Moscow. I know it's a long way away and you've never travelled on your own, but you can make it. You can take the train. Not from Rosna. They'll be checking everyone at the station. Go to Kursk. You can reach it through the forest. That's the safest way. Find the new highway and follow it. Do you understand? I nodded miserably. You remember Kursk? You've been there a few times. There's a station with trains every day to Moscow, one in the morning, one in the evening. Take the evening train when it's dark. If anyone asks you, say you're visiting an uncle. Never tell anyone you came from Estrov. Never use that word again. Promise me that? Where will I go in Moscow? I asked. I didn't want to leave. I wanted to stay with her. She stretched out and took me in her arms, hugging me against her. Don't be scared, Yasha. We have a good friend in Moscow. He's a biology professor. He worked with your father and you'll find him at the university. His name is Misha Dementeviev. I'll try to telephone him, but I expect they'll have cut the lines. It doesn't matter. When you tell him who you are, he'll look after you. Misha Dementeviv. I clung on to the two words, my only lifeline. My mother was still embracing me. I was looking at the curve of her neck, smelling her scent for the last time. Why can't you come with me? I sobbed. It would do no good. 
I'm infected. I want to stay with your father, but it's not so bad knowing you've got away. She moved me away from her, still holding me, looking straight into my eyes. Now, you have to be brave. You have to leave. Don't look back. Don't let anyone stop you. Mother? I love you, my dear son. Now go. If I'd spoken to her again, I wouldn't have been able to leave her. I knew that. We both did. I broke away. I ran. The forest was on the other side of the house, to the north and spreading to the east of Estrov. It stretched on for about 30 miles, mainly pie trees, but also linden, birch and spruce. It was a dark, tangled place and none of us ever went into it, partly because we were afraid of getting lost, but also because there was rumoured to be wolves around, particularly in winter. But somewhere inside me, I knew my mother was right. If there were police or soldiers in the area, they would concentrate on the main road. I would be safer out of sight. The highway that she mentioned cut through the forest and they were laying a new water pipe alongside it. To begin with, I followed the track that wound through the gardens, trying to keep out of sight although there was nobody around. In the distance I saw a boy I knew cycling past with a bundle under his arm, but he was alone. I passed the village shop. It was closed. I continued through the allotments where the villagers grew their own food and stole everyone else's. I was already hot wearing a double set of clothes and the air was suddenly warm and thick. The clouds were grey and swollen, rolling in from every side. It was definitely going to rain. I still wasn't sure I was going to do what my mother had told me. Did she really think I could so easily run off and leave her on her own with my father lying dead beside the fence? No matter what had happened at the factory and whatever she had said, I couldn't just abandon her. I would wait a few hours in the forest and see what happened and then, once it was dark, I would return. She had talked about a weapon, anthrax. She had said the whole village was contaminated but I refused to believe her. I was even angry with her for telling me these things. In truth, I do not think I was actually in my right mind. And then I saw someone ahead of me crouching down with their bottom in the air, pulling vegetables out of the ground. Even from this angle, I recognised him at once. It was Leo. He'd been working on his family's vegetable patch, probably as a punishment for doing something wrong. He had two younger brothers, and whenever any of them fought, their father would take the belt to them, and they would end up either mending fences or gardening. He was covered in mud with a bunch of very wrinkled carrots dangling from his hand. But seeing me approach, he broke into a grin. Hey, Yasha, he called out. He did a double take, noticing my pioneer's clothes. What are you doing? Leo, 
I was so glad to see him, but I didn't know what to say. How could I explain what had just happened? Did you hear the siren? he said. And they were shooting. I think something's happened over at the factory. Where are your parents? I asked. Dad's working. Mum's at home. Leo, you have to come with me. The words came rushing out. I hadn't planned to ask him along, but suddenly it was the most important thing in the world. I couldn't leave without him. Where are you going? He lowered the carrots and stood there with his legs slightly apart, one hand on his hip, his boots reaching up to his thighs. For a moment he looked like one of those old posters, the sort they had printed to get the peasants to work in the fields. He gave me a crooked smile. What's the matter, Yasha? What's wrong? My dad's dead, I said. What? Hadn't he understood anything? Hadn't he realised that something was wrong? But that was Leo for you. Explosions, gunshots, alarms, and he would just carry on weeding. He's been shot, I said. That was what the siren was about. It was him. They tried to stop him leaving, but he told me I had to go away and hide. Something terrible has happened at the factory. I was pleading with him. Please, Leo, come with me. I can't. He was going to argue. No matter what I told him, he would never have abandoned his family. But just then we became aware of a sound, something that neither of us had ever heard before. At the same time, we felt a slight pulsing in the air beating against our skin. We looked round and saw five black dots in the sky, swooping low over the hills, heading towards the village. They were military helicopters, just like the ones in the pictures in my room. They were still too far away to see properly, but they were lined up in precise battle formation. It was the exactness that made them so menacing. Somehow I was certain that they weren't going to land. They weren't going to disgorge doctors and technicians who had come to help us. My parents had warned me that people were coming to Estrov to kill me and I had no doubt at all they had arrived. Leo, come on now! There must have been something in my voice, or perhaps it was the sight of the helicopters themselves. But this time Leo dropped the carrots and obeyed. Together, without a single thought, we began to run up the slope away from the village. The edge of the forest, an endless line of thick trunks, branches, pine needles and shadows stretched out before us. We were still about 50 metres away, and now I found that my legs wouldn't work, that the soft mud was deliberately dragging me down. Behind me, the sound of the helicopters was getting louder. I didn't dare turn round. I could feel them getting closer and closer. And then, another shock, the bells of St Nicholas began to ring, the sound echoing over the rooftops. The church was empty, I had never heard the bells before. I was sweating. 
My whole body felt as if it was trapped inside an oven. Something hit me on the shoulder and for a crazy moment I thought one of the helicopters had fired a bullet. But it was nothing more than a fat raindrop. The storm was about to break. Yasha! We stopped at the very edge of the forest and turned around just in time to see the helicopters deliver their first payload. They fired five missiles, one after the other. But they didn't hit anything. Not like in an old war film. The pilots hadn't actually been aiming at any particular buildings. The missiles exploded randomly, in lanes, in people's gardens. But the destruction was much, much worse than anything I could have imagined. Huge fireballs erupted at the point of impact spreading out instantly so that they joined up with one another, wiping out everything they touched. The flames were a brilliant orange, fiercer and more than tense than any fire I had ever seen. They devoured my entire world, burning up the houses, the walls, the trees, the roads, the very soil. Nothing that touched those flames could possibly survive. The first five missiles wiped out almost the entire village, but they were followed by five more and then another five. We could feel the heat reaching out to us, so intense that even though we were some distance from it, our eyes watered and we had to look away. I put my hand to protect my face and felt the back of my fingers burn. In seconds, Estrov, the village where I had spent my entire life was turned into hell. My father was already dead, but I had no doubt at all that my mother had now joined him, and my grandmother, and Leo's mother and his brothers. It was impossible to see his house through the curtain of fire, but by now it would be nothing more than ash. The helicopters were continuing, heading towards us. Now they were closer. I recognised them at once. They were Mil MI-24s, sometimes known as crocodiles, developed for the Russian military for both missile support and troop movements. Each one could carry eight men at speeds of over 350 miles per hour, as well as the main and the tail rotors, the mill had two wings stretching out of the main fuselage, each one equipped with the missile launcher that dangled beneath it. I'd never seen anything that looked more deadly, more like a giant bird with claws outstretched, swooping out of the sky to snatch me up. They were getting closer and closer. I could actually see the nearest pilot very low down in the glass bubble that was the cockpit window. Where had he come from? Had he once been a boy like me, dreaming of flying? How could he sit there and responsible for so much killing? And yet he was without mercy. There could be no doubt at all that he was aiming the next salvo at me. I swear I saw him gazing straight at me as he fired. I saw the spurt of flame as the missiles were fired. Fortunately, they fell short. A wall of flame erupted about 30 metres behind me. 
Even so, the heat was so intense that Leo screamed. I could smell the air burning. A cloud of chemicals and smoke poured over us. It was only later that I realised it must have briefly shielded us from the pilot. Otherwise, he would have fired again. Leo and I plunged into the forest. The light was cut out behind us. Instantly we were surrounded by green with leaves and branches everywhere and soft moss beneath our feet. We had reached the top of the hill. The forest sloped down on the other side and this proved our salvation. We lost our footing and tumbled down, rolling over roots and mud. It was already raining hard. Water was dripping down and maybe that helped us too. We were invisible. We were away from the flames. As I fell through the trees, I caught a glimpse of the red and black horror that I had left behind. I heard the roar of helicopter blades. Branches were whipping and shaking all around me. Then I was at the very bottom of the hollow. Leo was next to me, staring helplessly, completely terrified. But we were protected by the forest and by the earth. The helicopters could not reach us. Well, perhaps the pilots could have tried again. Maybe they had exhausted their missile supply. Maybe they didn't think it was worth wasting more of their ammunition on two small boys. But even as I lay there, I knew that this wasn't over. They had seen us and they would radio ahead. Others would come to finish the work. It wasn't enough that the village had been destroyed. If anybody had managed to survive, they would have to be killed. There must be nobody left to tell what had happened. Yasha! Leah grasped. He was crying, his face a mess of mud and tears. We have to go, I said. We struggled to our feet and dropped into the safety of the forest. Behind us the sky was red, the helicopters hovering as Estrov continued to burn.